0: In ancient Rome, a woman was defined by her relationship to her family. Any fame she won was supposed to be confined to the private, domestic sphere. She wove such fine wool, she kept such a fine house, she was so very chaste and never made her father look bad. They weren't welcome in the public sphere of governance. They couldn't vote or hold office. Theirs was a distinctly patriarchal world. True fame and public achievement was supposed to be reserved for men. But where there's a will, there's a way. And in a society that coveted public glory, ambitious women found their way into the history books as well, even if just in scraps and often unflattering snatches. The stories we get of their lives come from male writers with their own agendas and prejudices, who treat them as cautionary tales and side stories as they write about important men. But when you read between the lines, we find women who stepped out from behind the shadows of their husbands and fathers to grasp real power and influence, even though the odds were never in their favor. But these domine, or female masters, couldn't just march out and take what they wanted. Instead, they had to be both smart and calculating, walking a tightrope between respectability and their own ambition. Sometimes that tightrope was more of a knife's edge. These women lived during tumultuous times. We'll see them navigate unwanted marriages, political intrigue, exile to small islands, poisonous plots, poorly executed coups, bloodthirsty sons, cutthroat politics, and many male haters, all while trying to stay alive and on top of the game in one of the world's most successful empires. So let's explore the lives of the women who lived during some of Rome's most dramatic and game-changing periods. We'll journey from the rough and tumble days of the late Roman Republic to see it through to its end, then step into the first heady decades of the Roman Empire and the Julio-Claudian dynasty that ran the show. Who were the women beyond the myths, legends, and smear campaigns? What decisions did they have to make, and what did it cost them? Grab a purple stola, a silver tongue, and a few vials of poison. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens Becky, Chloe, Emily, Gaia, Jackie C, Jessica B, Kara, Kayla, Lauren O, Marie Claire, Mira, Mikel, Morgan, Samantha, Sarah, Stephanie, and Wendy. And my lady presidents Alexis, Amanda, Amy, Brendan, Audrey, Belinda, Caroline. Cassie, Catherine, Krista, Claire, Courtney, Courtney H, Crystal, Dana, Debbie, Diana, Edie, Elizabeth M, Elizabeth G, Ellie, Elspeth, Eve, Iris, Jeanette, Jessica, Karen R, Casey, Kat, Kelly, Kelly F, Kim, Larissa, Lauren K, Lori, Louisa, Manda, Mary, Meg, Melissa, Nancy, Nicole, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, and Townsend. And to the Imperators and Augustas who donate more each month than I ask for, Avery, Karen C., Ray, and Jackie C., Becoming a patron really helps me keep the show going, and it gives you exclusive access to bonus episodes, sneak peeks, trailers, polls, prizes, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. And now, to Ancient Rome. As we travel with these female legends, it's important to remember that the only reason we know about these women is because of their attachment to famous men. Ancient male writers are usually only including them as a footnote, and often those footnotes aren't overly kind. For some of these women, we only have one or two ancient sources to go on, some of whom weren't even alive at the same time. They often treat gossip as fact and twist those facts to fit their own agendas. Writers like Plutarch and Cicero like to reduce powerful women to either paragons of virtue who stayed at home and had many babies, or shameless harlots and harbingers of doom. All of which is to say that these are threads we're dangling from here, not whole tapestries. We're gonna have to take we know about these ladies then put ourselves in their shoes and add in a good splash of conjecture, building on their stories from there. Also, if you haven't listened to episodes 14 through 16 called When in Rome, what have you been doing? I'd go back and do that before you dive into this one. It'll give you a whole lot of useful context on what it means to be a woman in Rome, what their day-to-day looked like, and help you understand the world we're about to travel through. And with that, let's conjure up an image of the ideal Roman woman, shall we? She's modestly dressed, of course, no cleavage, ladies, with eyes downturned, looking at once both chaste and resolved to maintain that chastity at any cost. Male or female, your virtus or honor matters, and much of our honor is situated directly between our legs, of course it is. To flesh out our ideal woman, let's throw in the tales that form the backbone of the Roman origin story. We've touched on a few of these before. The mythological founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, were conceived when their priestess mother, Rhea Silvia, was raped by the god of war. And then there's the story of the Sabine women, who helped populate the city of Rome when it was little more than a frontier dude ranch. These ladies were just minding their own business, bathing in a local stream, when some Roman men rode by and said something like,
1: Sup, ladies. Want to take this party back to our place?
0: Um, no thank you.
1: Is this a no-means-yes situation? Because that's the vibe we're getting.
0: Ew. We do not want to party with you, or hold your hands, or be your wives, Okay?
1: You know, that sounds like a yes to us.
0: The women were kidnapped and taken back to Rome to produce strapping Roman youths. No consent necessary. And then, when the rageful menfolk come storming over to get them back, the Sabine women tell them to put down their pitchforks and just roll with it, because what's done is done. And they would rather die than cause any violence between their old families and their new ones. And then there is Lucretia, that early Roman matron who invited the Roman king's son in like a good hostess, only to have him sneak into her bedroom and take her by force. When her husband found out, he told her it wasn't her fault, but she said she'd rather die than live with the shame. Her suicide sparked a revolution that ended Rome's monarchy and helped birth the republic. Rape, suicide, sacrifice. Are we sensing a disturbing trend? In all of these stories, we have women forced into sexual acts they don't want, which are written over by what it gives the men around them. They become either a bridge that reaches over troubled waters like the Sabines, or a flame that ignites a massive change. They all give up their lives to give birth to something. And that is an integral part of the Roman picture of what an ideal woman should be. Yikes. These mythological women were lauded and revered, but not because they were famous. No, no. A good Roman woman does not seek fame or notoriety. She is not ambitious, certainly. That's super masculine, or so the ancient male writers like to stress. How did real-world women deal with these impossible standards and cultural framework? How did women who wanted it all walk that very thin line between public honor and infamy? If there was a Rate Your Roman Matron Scale, ranging from 10 for Living Goddess to 1 for Scourge Straight from the Mouth of the Underworld, we'd find the three women we're about to cover at three vastly different points. One's all the way down at one, putting her squarely into the Nasty Woman category. Another hovers at about a 5, I'd wager, in the Slightly Suspicious but Also Respectable section. But the first woman we're going to spend time with is right up at 10. Her name is Cornelia. Cornelia Africana, and she is everything that you'll never be able to be. But who's the real flesh-and-blood lady who becomes the poster child for what it means to be a good Roman woman? Let's dig into her story and try to find her. But before we dive into Cornelia's life, let's set the scene for the Rome this woman is living in, because it's different in many ways from the raging height of empire we explored in episodes 14 through 16. In 509 BCE, back when Lucretia was raped by that horrible prince and the Romans decided they were done with kings forever, they ditched monarchy and formed a new government. This wasn't Greece's absolute democracy, but a republic, a system where elected Roman citizens ruled the city on behalf of the populace, but the number of people participating in that process was pretty small. Much like in Greece, only citizens could participate, and then, of course, only men. And the people running Rome are mostly wealthy. The idea was that no one of those men could achieve too much power in the republican system. Though Rome never writes up a constitution, this system of checks and balances ticks along quite nicely for quite a long time. To understand Lucretia's Rome and the Rome that comes after, we need to understand the distinctions made between social and economic classes, which dominate how a person, male or female, moves through this world. So start by imagining a mountain. Those luxe chalets at the very tippy top are the patricians. They're all supposedly descended from Rome's first major clans, making them extra special. And they represent the city's richest and most prestigious. Most of the rest of the mountain is populated by the plebeians, or plebs, who are essentially the working class. While some live pretty humble lives, others grow quite rich and influential, and they do serve roles in government but they aren't considered as high class as the patricians. Below that, in the foothills, are freed people, people who were once enslaved but now aren't, and who have little power in government, at least at this point in Rome's history. And then, down in the swamps, where no one else wants to live, there is Rome's growing slave population, and, well, they have no rights at all. While we're at it, let's talk a little bit about the political power pyramid. I just heard you sigh, didn't I? Politics talk when women can't participate in government? Snooze fest. But because of the circles these women run in, this is something it'll pay to understand. In terms of how the Republic is run, we have three basic elements. Elected non-hereditary magistrates, the Senate, and the Popular Assemblies. This is a time before emperors, remember, but we need someone who can make quick decisions. For that, we have two consuls. Appointed by the Popular Assembly, this position is pretty much as high up the chain as you can go. They have serious executive power. They can command armies, propose legislation, and lord it over the Senate. They wear special togas with purple borders. They sit in special, kind of throne-like chairs. And they're protected at all times by lictors, those special bodyguards who the Vestal Virgins also get to spend time with, who wave around special sticks called fasces that are essentially an axe wrapped in reeds that they can beat people over the head with. Only patricians can be consuls, at least in this era, and they hold so much power that terms can only go for one year, and no one's allowed to serve for more than one term in a row. But in that year, a console can do a whole lot with the position. If we were to climb down the political ladder starting at Consul, we'd pass through praetors who look after legal cases, censors who guide morals and property investment, aediles who supervise markets and temples, and quaestors who are in charge of public finance. And if we slide onto the side a little, we'll arrive at the Senate. They control Rome's purse strings, supervise foreign affairs, debate state legislation, and direct Rome's religious life. So while this legislative body actually holds no legal power, it's incredibly influential as an advisory body. Senators are unpaid, can't participate in banking or foreign trade, and their positions are usually for life, so it'll surprise you not at all to learn that only patricians can be senators. I mean, who else could afford it? And they tend to use their powers to better their own situations, often to the detriment of the working class. And then there are the four popular assemblies who help to elect the guys in that power ladder we talked about before. Plebs participate in these, as they're meant to represent the interests of the people. They elect their own tribunes as well, who are kind of like the patrician consuls. They can veto any magistrate decision as it relates to the plebs, which means they can cause enough trouble for patricians and the senate alike to cause them the occasional migraine. But still, there's a steep difference in power here, and that, unsurprisingly, is going to cause unrest that ebbs and flows. Still confused by this mess of Roman crazy? Check out the diagram of power I made you over on the show notes. At this point, Rome's a real rising star on the conquering foreign nations front. This century, we will see it ballooning outward, eating up modern-day Spain, bits of North Africa, Greece, Northern Italy. In just one generation, it's going to more than double in size. For a clearer picture of how the empire spread over time, check out my colorful map of ancient Rome in the show notes, which you can also buy and hang up on your bedroom wall, just for funsies. Because the Roman army at this time is made up of citizen soldiers, while the men are away, the ladies of Rome will start stepping in to take over their business. With so many heads of families dying abroad, someone has to pick up the slack. In 215 BCE, concerned by the alarmingly large number of women making fortunes, the Senate passes a wartime austerity measure called the Lex Appia, a law meant to curb what women can wear and do in public. Years into this blatantly sexist law, a bunch of frustrated women march on the forum showing up in force to proclaim that they're pretty done with being kicked around we talked about this a bit in episode 15 but in some they heckle the men into changing the law showing that while women can't vote in rome they can make a marked difference on the political landscape speaking of war let's meet cornelius father if publius cornelius scipio africanus had an ok cupid profile i think it might go a little something like this
2: Oh, I'm no one special, just your average Roman military genius, I suppose. I'm what you call a self-starter. Since marching off to war at 17, I've known very few days without my armor on, but the woman brave enough to peel it off will find a soft heart underneath. My interests include long, grueling marches, being chivalrous because it makes me look good, and soundly defeating my rivals. My motto? Sleep is for the weak.
0: As a teen, he marches off to war with his father to fight the Carthaginians, Rome's greatest rival, who they will fight several times from 264 to 146 BCE. After losing both father and brother in battle, he rose up through the ranks and essentially won the Second Punic War for Rome, defeating the dreaded Hannibal with tactics that would be studied for many centuries to come. He does it against steep odds and becomes known for giving his enemies a healthy dose of clemency. While in Spain, Livy tells us, his troop supposedly captured a lovely lady from a local chief and presented her as a prize to Scipio. He was pretty keen at first, but then he found out she was already engaged, so he called the guy over and gave her back with apologies. A gentleman and good at swordplay. In short, this guy is one of the Roman world's most massive deals, and his illustrious pedigree is going to make any children he has famous, kind of like the children of big movie stars in our era. And so, with all that in mind, we arrive at our girl Cornelia Africana Minor, born somewhere around 191 BCE. What a name. The Africanus part is a title given by the Republic as a reward for Scipio's conquering bits of Africa. And because girls take on their father's name, she gets it too. Lucky girl. Her family clan is the Cornelii, one of six major patrician families. Which means that, socially speaking, she's the cream of the crop. As will swiftly become a theme with our roman women even the famous ones we don't know much about her childhood much of what we do know was written well after she lived and by men looking to use her story to make a point about something but how might she grow up we know she's not confined to women's quarters as the women are over in greece she probably spends a lot of time hanging out with the men in her family when they're not off playing conquering hero she'll see her mother, a noblewoman named Emilia Paula, spending a lot of time with her husband as well going out to dinner, soaking in his prestige. She can go out with permission and guidance to public events like religious festivals, games, and to do a little bit of bathing. Mom can even act as a witness if called to court. The Republican matron is especially revered when she has babies, whom she is in charge of educating and admired for her position in the family. But the truth is, for the most part, the Republic keeps a fairly tight leash on its women. As early as 450 BCE, the Law of the Twelve Tables made sure that women were placed under the control of male heads of the household. The Republican matron is in many ways treated like a child, legally speaking. Whether she enters into a manis marriage, as we talked about in episode 15, or a marriage where her father stays the boss of her, she is confined, constricted, and controlled by the men in her family. And those family members expect her to stay mostly at home, showing, as this first-century eulogy says
1: proper restraint and not desire a diversity of words
0: if you say so We can assume Cornelia gets a decent education, given what an intellectual she becomes later on. And we can also assume she knows what a big deal her father is. She probably spends time listening to his war stories and meeting the illustrious people who come to visit. Here is Dr. Rad from the podcast The Partial Historians, who, along with her co-host Dr. G, is here to help tell some of these women's tales
3: she comes from a very elite background and this is definitely important because of course she is you know a very high standing Uh, she's the daughter of a guy called Scipio Africanus who is a very 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 well-known figure in Roman politics and in our Roman military circles Um, he he's very well established so the fact that she has that kind of pedigree very important as well, it makes her a very desirable candidate uh, for marriage.
0: Cornelia doesn't get her father for long, though. Scipio dies in 183 BCE. R.I.P., Dad. But he still manages to think ahead and arrange a marriage for his daughter. So around the age of 17, she hooks up with a guy named Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. While he isn't necessarily as big a deal as old Scipio, I mean, who is? He certainly is no slouch in the political arena. Livy called him, far and away, the sharpest young man of that time. Born into a plebeian family, he served bravely in the East in campaigns run by Scipio and his brother Lucius, helping them win a mighty victory. It's worth noting that in settling that war, the Scipio boys amassed gigantic sums of money, even accepting bribes from local kings. And so, when they marched back into Rome, ready to be showered in glitter and hailed as heroes, the Senate instead charged them with corruption. Awkward. But Gracchus was a tribune of the plebs at the time. Remember, they're about as powerful as a plebeian can get. And he vetoed the proceedings and essentially got them off the hook for the whole sticky business. So, old Scipio owed him a solid, and Cornelia's husband is a man on the rise, to be sure. But in winning her hand, he's basically hit Rome's bachelor jackpot. Her husband goes on to serve not one, but two consulships. Remember, this is the highest position you can get in politics, baby. He throws some lavish games, makes a notable peace agreement over in Spain, and finds himself awarded two triumphs. These are basically giant street parties thrown to celebrate a guy's military victories. In Cornelia's day, getting two of them is almost unheard of. Amidst all that, he and Cornelia seem to enjoy a happy marriage. I like to imagine this consists of Cornelia both hosting lavish dinners and staying up late discussing policy with her handsome husband, though we can only really guess what kind of relationship they have. We know they must get on all right in the bedroom because she bears him 12 children. Let me repeat that. 12 children. I know. It's excessive.
2: But what can I say? I'm fertile as hell, and my husband can really rock a toga, if you know what I'm saying.
0: In Rome, having three kids is considered pretty good innings, and in the ancient world, having children at all is a dangerous business. If you ask me, I think she deserves a medal, just for that. Sadly, but unsurprisingly, given Rome's child mortality rate, only three survive into adulthood a girl named Sempronia, and two boys, Tiberius and Gaius. Even in a world where infant death is fairly common, we have to imagine that she's devastated by each loss. Imagine the strength it would take to live through 12 deliveries, then the pain of losing so many. It makes her that much more protective of the ones she has left. Unfortunately, her marital bliss can't last. Not after Tiberius finds snakes between their covers.
3: There's a story of two serpents appearing in, in their in their marriage bed. And Ooh.
4: Yeah, yeah, I know. Was, well, you yeah. telling me there's more than one snake in here? <laughs>
0: In Rome, we're really big on signs and portents. Everything has some potential for meaning. Every strike of lightning is cause for concern. And unlike the snakes found in our Macedonian friend Olympias's bed, this is not considered a sign that Zeus is impregnating anyone. Concerned, Tiberius puts those snakes in a terrarium or something and goes to some priests to ask their advice. This is what they come up with. Okay, Tiberius, here's the sitch. One of those snakes is a male, and one is a female, and they represent you and your wife. You're going to have to kill one of them. And whichever one you kill, the person they represent is going to die. That'll be three sesterces for the reading, bye. I'd probably just release them into the wild and hope for the best, but apparently that isn't a viable option for Papa Gracchus. He decides to kill the male snake, knowing that he'll perish also. This might be a practical move. He's much older than Cornelia, after all, and his sons will need their mother.
3: But it also seems to be because he respects and admires her so much, he he wants her to, to live on.
0: Of course, it's possible this story is a whole bunch of hooey, but still.
3: He certainly predeceases her by quite some way. So yeah, it's interesting that he, he is the husband, made that
0: choice. However he dies, we can assume she's probably sad about it. And there's also the fact that she remains a widow forever after. A woman who does this is called an uniwira, or one-man-woman. And this is, in many ways, a really savvy move. It's a special place to be. She's only known one man, and
4: this is considered, for a Roman matrona, the pinnacle.
0: This is something that Romans consider a position to shoot for, A woman who stays faithful to only one man even after that man has passed away? We love a lady who stands by her man, even in death. But being an Uniwira is a luxury that most women can't afford. Remember that our paterfamilias, the male head of the family, is very much in charge of us. So if dad's alive, he's going to be very interested in using his daughters as a way to cement alliances with other families through marriage, whether you're excited about it or not. When one husband dies, most women are going to find themselves swiftly married to another, at least if they're part of the upper class. But Cornelia's dad is dead, and that means he has no control over whether she remarries at all. She's got plenty of money, and she's already had her children. That is 12 years
2: of being pregnant, y'all.
0: I am done. This is a rare sweet spot for a Roman matron to be in. She gets to keep her good standing without having to tie herself to a man to get things done. I suspect she doesn't marry again, not because she's super heartbroken about losing her husband, though she might be. She sees a rare path to true independence for a woman, and she grabs it. As a widow, she has respectability and power. She sees a chance to have her cake and eat it too. Not that she doesn't get some impressive offers. One of them supposedly comes from Ptolemy VIII, the current pharaoh of Egypt. He's like, baby, I'll make you a queen. And she politely replies, you know what, I'm good as Dr. G says. People are sort of like, let
4: me out of her. And she's like, no thanks, I'm done here. She's like, I had my man.
0: He sacrificed a snake for me. Instead, she settles down to the task of taking care of her kids, which is a job she takes quite seriously. As Plutarch writes.
1: Cornelia took charge of the children and of the estate and showed herself so discreet, so good a mother, and so magnanimous that Tiberius was thought to have made no bad decision, he elected to die instead of such a woman. Plutarch is a real Cornelia fanboy."
0: Though it's proper for a Roman Matron to take the lead in educating her sons, she usually gets tutors in for the truly hard-hitting stuff. I mean, it's not as if she knows anything about politics or speech-making. And Cornelia does bring in noted scholars to educate her sons, but because she's running her own damn show, she actually sits in on their lessons with them. Latin-Greek philosophy, Cornelia is loving this mature-age student life, full of debate and intellectual discussion that she probably didn't get to indulge in during childhood. And it seems her passion rubs off on her kids. She dotes on her sons Tiberius and Gaius, and we hope her daughter Sempronia too, though the ancient sources obviously don't have time to give her more than a footnote. And like a proper Roman matron, Cornelia becomes famous for considering those kids her finest achievement. There's a story that says that, one day, she's hanging out with one of her gal pals who's showing off some glitzy new jewels. Cornelia, of course, doesn't mess with any of that glitzy business. She doesn't need to. Instead, she just waves at her sons and says proudly, These are my jewels. This smacks of something a male writer came up with to shame other Republican women for liking shiny things, but it's easy to believe that she feels proud of her children and invested in them. They are hers to shape, her legacy, and she's going to make sure they are headed for greatness. Though I don't think she's quite ready for what shape that greatness takes. But before we get into that, I want to introduce you to a smashing new podcast.
1: Hi, I'm B.T. Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts, The History of Sex.
0: Again, we zoom out, remembering that Cornelius brought her boys up in a century of Roman war and expansion, which has brought in mad money and expanded borders, but also some serious unrest. The wars made some Romans rich, including Cornelia's family, but it also brought tons of prisoners of war flooding into Italy as slaves, which is, of course, terrible for them, as they're forced to endure lives of hard labor. But it's also wreaked havoc on the economy. Where once it ran on a lot of small farms worked by local families, this sudden plethora of cheap labor means that the rich can create huge estates and run them cheaply, totally displacing blue-collar Roman workers. And with farming men gone for long periods, fighting in war after war, their farms often lie fallow and they go bankrupt, forced to sell for next to nothing to those patrician-run superfarms. Many of them go into Rome to find work, which isn't plentiful, so they have plenty of time to sit around and feel mutinous feelings. There are some major slave uprisings as well, which only creates more disquiet about what seems like Rome's growing corruption. The rich stay rich while the poor get poorer, and a lot of people are unhappy about it. But a populist movement is rising in Rome, led by people who want to straight-up Robin Hood this business. And Cornelius' sons are going to be some of the sparks that help light the flame, a flame that marks the beginning of the end for Rome's republic. Here's another quick injection of Roman politics for you. Stick with me. At this moment, Rome has one major political group. They're called the Optimates, otherwise known as the Best Men. Super humble. These guys are the rich landowners who the poor and unemployed in Rome currently feel a little bit like stabbing. They're also the guys who run the Senate, and they want to stay rich and power by upholding the status quo. They're so powerful that any attempt to change their ways up to this point has yielded very little. But a new political group is starting to shake things up. They're called the populares, and they're the party of the people. As such, they try to disrupt the optimates by drumming up support among the masses. Enter Cornelius jewels, stage left. When they sashay into the political spotlight, Rome is seeing a major economic downturn. Prices are up, grain is in short supply, and the downtrodden plebs are once again starting to grumble. Tiberius Gracchus looks around his city, and he sees some major problems. He wants to be a great man like his dad was, and, I imagine, to live up to his mother's faith. Though he's been raised in the lap of luxury, Tiberius is ready to take up the plebeian torch. In 133 BCE, he's elected as a tribune of the plebs. As such, he proposes something rather radical, that public lands be redistributed so that rich owners own no more than 350 acres, the rest to be divvied up between the working class. The common people love this, but as you can imagine, the rich are pissed. They accuse him of trying to incite revolution. The problem is that there are two tribunes, and every time Tiberius tries to pass his law, the other tribune vetoes it down. In frustration, Tiberius starts vetoing all laws that come across his desk, bringing the government grinding to a halt. Eventually, he takes one of his proposals straight to the assemblies, bypassing the Senate altogether. This is a precedent-breaking move that makes it so that plebeian assemblies can change laws that apply to everyone, no matter what the Senate might think about it. It changes the rules of the political game. Then later, in 123 BCE, Cornelius' son Gaius follows in Big Bro's footsteps and is elected a tribune himself, and he also proposes some radical reforms. He wants voting by secret ballot, subsidized grain, Courts where no senators are allowed to be jurors. These guys are doing some major pot stirring, and they are shaking things up in Rome. So where is Cornelia in all of this? It's hard to say. Here's Dr. Rad and Dr. G. We do get a sense
3: from the source material, which admittedly is focusing on her sons, not really her most of the time. It's she's really used to explain their character and how they came to be the way they are and why their political career goes the way that it does. We have these interesting hints coming through the sources that it's because of Cornelia that her sons are so well-educated and able to give such impressive speeches in their political careers. Uh, Most of our information does come from a source called Plutarch, who's a biographer writing much later, um, you know, well after Cornelia and all her children are dead but we do also have a hint about Cornelia's ability with words and her education level coming through from sources that are earlier like Cicero. Cicero claims that he's actually read some of her letters and that he seems to attribute her high education level to the success of her sons and that having an influence on her sons in their later careers which is which is interesting um definitely Roman women are expected if they're particularly if they're elite to be well educated so that they can pass on a good education to their children but that only goes to a certain
4: level like yeah it does seem yeah. unusual to credit the mother Um, mostly because mothers tend to have less education, Mm. um, and a different style of education than, than men. So at some point you're like, does this mean that Cornelia's education was continued or, and she showed a genuine interest and she was allowed to continue with that interest? Mm. If so, I think that's also quite interesting that for elite women, potentially the restrictions on education were less, um, than they might've been for other Roman women.
0: These men are fantastic at oratory, at winning favor, and making an impression wherever they go. For that, we've got to give at least some credit to Cornelia, and that she isn't afraid to lean on them to create the change she's seeking. And it seems like her sons take her requests pretty seriously. It's said that her son Gaius removes a law disgracing a guy named Marcus Octavius, a tribune her other son Tiberius deposed, just because Cornelia asks him to. Get it, Cornelia
3: and they seem to have acceded to this particular request which is kind of interesting because this is this is fairly early on for a woman to be having this kind of influence like it's not like we're in the imperial period where women have been put more in the spotlight so it is kind of interesting that she seems to have this sort of inf- this sort of influence over them and that they might listen to her there, um, And also
4: that she's politically minded and politically yeah, active, because um, this is like, women are not encouraged in any way to be in that public political space. Mm. And in fact, there would have been limitations on her capacity um, to hear and come across information of a political nature, because most of the settings in which that happened were exclusionary of women. So... This is, it it is interesting that she's so politically focused.
0: So while Cornelia may not be out there debating in the Senate and passing laws, she's involved at the highest levels. Her sons even use her in their rhetoric whenever someone tries to make them look bad. One time, when another speaker apparently said something unkind about his family, Gaius says,
1: What? Dost thou abuse Cornelia? Who gave birth to Diberius.
0: And he he then starts
3: using her to attack his political opponent by talking about the fact that, you know, she's only ever been with one person, you know, one sexual partner. You know, can you say as much?
0: And then, because this guy he's berating has a bit of a rep for being effeminate, horrors, and a bit of a tart to boot.
1: With what effrontery can thou compare thyself with Cornelia? Hast thou born such children as she did? And verily, all Rome knows that she refrained from commerce with men longer than thou hast, though thou art a man.
0: In other words...
1: Mate, my mom slept with fewer men than you have.
0: Unfortunately, Tiberius's populist riff referee makes the best men so irate that a mob beats him and his followers to death in 133. That same year he's elected tribune. Years later, Gaius is hunted so aggressively by his haters that it seems he might meet the same fate. We don't know how Cornelia feels about her son's populist policies, but we can imagine how fearful she must be for Gaius. She doesn't want to lose another much-beloved son. A much later Latin biographer, Cornelius Nepus, gives us excerpts that he says come from one of Cornelia's letters to Gaius. I would
2: dare to take an oath solemnly, swearing that, except for those who have murdered Tiberius Gracchus, no enemy has foisted so much difficulty and so much distress upon me as you have because of the matters. You should have shouldered the responsibilities of all those children whom I had in the past, and to make sure that I might have had the least anxiety possible in my old age, And that, whatever you did, you would wish to please me most greatly, and that you would consider it sacrilegious to do anything of great significance contrary to my feelings, especially as I am someone with only a short portion of my life left. Cannot even that time span, as brief as it is, be of help in keeping you from opposing me and destroying our country? In the final analysis, what end will there be? When will our families stop behaving insanely? When will we cease insisting on troubles, both suffering and causing them? When will we begin to feel shame about disrupting and disturbing our country? In other words... Baby child, I am getting way too old for this drama, and your pot stirring is giving me serious ulcers. So stop all this radical politics nonsense. Listen to your mama.
0: You have to wonder if these are even her words. It's possible they were written by her son's enemies to make it look like even his mom wasn't down. I like to think she's proud of her sons for championing the downtrodden, but I wouldn't be surprised if she really just wants Gaius to chill out already. Sadly, chilling out is not his style. Things get so ugly for her remaining son that he's forced to commit suicide. And so Cornelia has to bear outliving all of her children. But even in her grief, we're told, she keeps a stiff upper lip.
3: She is sad, obviously, that they're no longer alive, but... She takes pride in who they were and what they accomplished, and she's she's restrained in her grief. She just retires, you know, in a dignified way, um you know, and spends her time, you know moving in educated circles and you know, philosophers <laughs> and that kind of stuff.
0: so though her sons die violently, she spends her old age hosting salons and reading really good novels, and probably influencing the growing republic in ways we'll never know.
3: We do have reports that a statue was erected of her which is highly unusual for a statue to be erected of a woman and set up in a public place. And supposedly what it it says is that this is Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi. Now that is very unusual because women tend to be known more as daughters of their illustrious fathers, not mother, not mothers of illustrious children.
4: I think this is important to emphasize because when we look at like the ancient sculptures of the past, now there's a huge profusion of women um, depicted, um, women of everyday life as well as goddesses and things like that. Mm. So I think it's important to distinguish that when we're talking about this period of the Republic uh, one statuary is more unusual and two statuary of women is considered exceptionally rare yeah. so she's kind of credited as the first um, to gain this sort of public depiction and to have as the inscription that she's the mother of the Gracchi so the sons have superseded her own connection to her father Exactly, um, is very impressive as
0: well The fact that she's attached to them shows that they made quite a splash in Roman society, but it also says that society at large recognized her role in shaping them, that she, as their mother, had an important role to play. Cornelia will be held up forevermore as a paragon of virtue, an image to beat later women over the head with when they step outside of society's bounds. Was she really so well-behaved? I doubt it. Would she have appreciated being used in this way? I suspect not. In fact, I think we should remember this strong, tenacious matron less as an icon and more as a fighter. A loving mother and a charismatic woman who found a way to live her life and influence the world she lived in on her terms. Let's leave off there for now, shall we? Next time, we'll travel forward some 100 years to a very fateful time in Roman history, 44 BCE. It's the year the mighty Julius Caesar dies, but we're going to focus in on the bomb women around him, starting with the mistress who influenced the great man from behind the scenes for decades. Her name is Servilia, and I think you're gonna like her style. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with some friends, leave a review, or consider becoming a patron for exclusive bonus episodes and other goodies. You can also support the show and get yourself some lovely artwork while you're at it by purchasing a lady-centric map, timeline, art print, or greeting cards over at my Etsy merchandise shop. For a transcript of this episode, a list of my research sources, lots of images and more, check out my website at theexplorespodcast.com. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and on Twitter at The Explores Pod. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael Levy. Special thanks to Dr. Rad and Dr. G of the Partial Historians for their help exploring ancient Rome. And to my lovely intern, Stephanie Foley, for helping me get this episode together. Thanks, too, to Paul Gablonski for my logo and theme music and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. John Armstrong, Caitlin Seifert, Avery Downing, Paul Gablonski, and Sean from the podcast Stories of Your and Yours.